Welcome, friends. You're listening to Where Water Flows Uphill, a production of Weld Found. We're asking a big question this series. In the coming flood of change, who do we want to be? We are offering significant stories for our region as we are in a season of tremendous growth, all while following the artist Wes Bruce, who's doing a large-scale installation at the new Library and Innovation Center in downtown Greeley, Colorado. In today's show, we're offering stories about innovation in the face of challenge, and water is a big unifying theme. Before we begin, would you like to meet Wes Bruce, an artist described as Willy Wonka meets Mr. Rogers? You can hear from him live and get a sneak peek at his installation because the Weld Community Foundation, who produces this show, is holding their 25-year anniversary luncheon on Thursday, October 20th. Hence the foundation's big annual fundraising event. We'll hear from Wes while having lunch together. It should be a really special time, and you're invited. Tickets are on sale at weldcommunityfoundation.org. Proceeds go to the foundation, a nonprofit who works to strengthen the bonds that make our communities thrive. Come pick up a ticket at weldcommunityfoundation.org. We would love to see you there. With that, let's begin episode three, titled Changing the Course of a River. I want to tell you about a couple who stopped their house from flooding. But we're going on a journey to get there. In 2017, I was at the mall with my kids when a terrible thunderstorm struck. This was in the spring. I had taken my four kids with me to play at the mall playground to give my wife a touch of quiet. Our fourth was about six months old and I was trying to give Bethany, my wife, some space to relax. These torrential rains began that afternoon and I remember them actually evacuating us from the mall because some of the roof, like the windows, the center of the building had caved in from the sudden downpour. With three littles and a baby, I ran from the mall to our van, all of us getting soaked. And I thought to myself, I am sure our house is absolutely flooding right now. We had lived at this home on 11th Avenue in Greeley, Colorado, and our house had a propensity to flood almost once a year. We lived right next to an old agricultural water system called ditch number three. And the sidewalk in front of our house had a major intake for the ditch. It would just start piling up water in the middle of the street and then pour into our yard and create a lake. When that happened, our brick-walled basement would gain six or seven fountains of water pouring in. There'd be five to seven inches in some places. Then in a few hours, it would soak into this free drainage hole used as a cold air intake in our basement. For days, we would clean up the soot and dirt and mud and everything would then get dry again. It was a rule that we didn't keep anything on the basement that couldn't get wet, or at least it couldn't be lifted, you know, foot off the ground. I remember friends saying, oh, my basement flooded. And they'd have some water trickling in, like through a window, maybe a puddle would form, 12 ounces of disaster in their eyes. And I was like, ah, you have no idea. The kids loaded up. I began to drive back to our house and it was a treacherous journey. 
I remember driving through areas of the street deep underwater and thinking this is a dumb move, but also having this overwhelming feeling, I need to get back to my wife and help with the flooding basement. I would go down one block, an intersection would be completely submerged. So I'd turn around and find another route, a couple roads over and drive through what I hoped was a manageable depth for our van. It was harrowing. We finally made it onto 13th Street heading east and I have this distinct memory of looking over to my right at ditch number three, at about 13th Avenue. And for the first time in my years living here, seeing the ditch spilling over its sides onto the street. I'd never actually seen it get that full. I'd seen the drainage intake swell up and flood into our yard, but never the actual ditch getting overwhelmed. I want to take a moment and and pause here. Let's fade the storm away. I want you to picture this ditch number three in your mind. If you're listening, you're not from Greeley, Colorado, your town probably has a drainage ditch of some sort. It's just a, a canal dug into the ground that heads throughout the city. Years later, I actually learned the history of ditch number three in Greeley. It's a bit famous because alongside its creation came a bunch of new water laws that were really instigated from our region in Colorado. Way back in 1869, an agricultural journalist in New York City named Nathan Meeker issued a call in his column. The call was for individuals interested in establishing a colony in the West, in Colorado. He was shocked when he received thousands of letters in response. Horace Greeley, who owned the paper Meeker contributed to, loved the idea, supported it so much the town is named after him. So after that call, Things moved fast. Greeley, Colorado was founded the next year in 1870 with 610 people all heading west. It was officially incorporated in 1871. Here's who they wanted to become. Meeker wanted to found a union colony, a utopian religious farming cooperative. Let me, let me say that again. A utopian religious farming cooperative This cooperative would be held to seven principles. Temperance, cooperation, education, irrigation, faith, agriculture, and family. The first colonist to actually pitch a tent was John F. Sunburn. Great name, right? Who arrived on April 18, 1870. So what did the settlers desperately need to make their religious utopian farming cooperative happen? Well, the answer is right there in the seven principles. It's the principle that surprised me the most. Irrigation is one of the named most important things for the established colony. What did the settlers need? Water. They needed water to make the life they envisioned truly happen. The 600 colonists immediately rolled up their sleeves and started digging which I've read was actually a surprise for them. The settlers didn't realize they'd have to put in this water system. They had to figure it out themselves. This ditch at the time was an innovation in the face of great challenge, a way to get the settlers water for their homes and crops. It was a creative leap forward in how things were done in the area. Taking tremendous effort, this innovative move laid the foundation for the town to prosper. 
And some 150 years later, ditch number three is still being used to this day, strictly for agriculture now. And not very often, it floods. So back with me now, 2017, we're in a van full of children and trying to get home to a house most likely flooding. After driving through the city and at times floating the van through water as we made it home, I pulled into the driveway. There was a nice big lake in the front of our yard and I could see my wife through the front window, exhausted, hauling things up from the basement. I ran in to help her and we started the process of recovery. By the way, I recounted all this to my kids and they remember having a wonderful time making large plastic storage containers into boats and pretending to be pirates on the open seas. Ah, to be young. I began this story by saying I wanted to tell you about a couple who stopped their house from flooding. That couple wasn't Betty and I. We loved our home, even with its propensity to flood, but we'd outgrown it. When we put it up for sale, we wrote in the contract, very pronounced, it floods. Hey everyone, it floods. But the house was still bought. And what did the next couple do in the face of challenge with danger on the horizon? They got innovative. They tore off the front porch and built walls around the foundation. They put in French drains. They put in a berm along the sidewalk and uh, the ditches drain intake. Major changes, but the basement hasn't flooded since. Even in the midst of torrential rains, their innovations have stood strong. I love this idea about humans so much that in the face of challenge, when problem strikes, it can seem overwhelming, but someone comes along with a creative solution. Something that hasn't been tried before could be risky. But what have we got to lose? If we dig a ditch, we could get the water we need. If we rebuild this porch differently, our house will be safe. Come with me now to the river to hear from Wes Bruce. Artists seem to have an expertise when it comes to creative thinking and solutions outside the box. Wes's installation at the link is inspired by an area of a hundred some acres around the Poudre River, found on the west side of Greeley. So most of the interviews with him were held out there in the wild so we could get inspired alongside him. We went out to the river on a very windy day. I had to borrow some special microphones to make it work. I had some specific questions for Wes about innovation and creativity. Wes has some pretty far out there ideas when it comes to the art he wants to create the installations he builds into museums and art galleries. Certainly, he's had some pushback, right? He's come to a builder or an architect and had the response, you want to do what? Mm, no, you can't do that. Here's Wes. Okay, so let's take, are you willing to take a direct shortcut? Yeah, that'd be fine. <laughs> we'll see how good of an idea it was to go for a walk at the river. <laughs> it's over here. Oh, look up, look up. 
moon? What is it? A kestrel. Ah. It's like a like a hawk that somebody left in the microwave for too long. <laughs> cool. But I thought we might have a nice yeah, audio I quality. I think you're right. Like right here, maybe. Yes. <laughs> We're out of direct wind, but I guess we're still getting the sound of the wind in trees. But I like that. Okay. Yeah. Okay, let me... Is this one of your favorite places in the river? This bend? Yeah, I do particularly love this bend, yeah. It's got a lot of different interactions. One of my favorites is to stand over there when this is all glassy and skip rocks mm -hmm. going up that way. Also, I used to come here um, in different seasons, early, early, early in the morning, like pre-sunrise, in the winter time, and I would just be super bundled up, and I would just sit in this little nook in here, and just like feel the presence of kind of being underground, like in in the earth. When it was really comforting, like there were some seasons where I was just sad, and so I would just like come here and sit and be with the river, and. I also describe this uh, for us, uh, yeah. those listening. So we are on a bend in the river. There was a nice, uh, probably 40 yard stretch of calm water, or uh, it's not calm right now because it's windy, but it's usually calm. And then just to the east of it, there's a part of the bank that has fallen in that makes like a little bench and it allows the space from which it fell off the bank to almost be seen as a cross section. So there's about four feet of exposed dirt with like a, a nice tuft of the, the winterized kind of golden gray grass that waterfalls over the top and kind of like, uh, like the granite in Yosemite that goes a little past vertical or like a wave in the ocean that's about to break. It has a little uh, concavity in it that allows you to just sort of nestle in and actually have the bank come up over your head if you want and look out over the river. So you're almost sitting inside the ground and there's a couple spots where you can see into little mole tunnels and you can see the roots of things and little stones peeking out, a window uh, into the earth. So many uh, unique stories uh, towards um, Working, like, you've got a big idea. You've got your big idea uh, that you're going to build, and it's not really anything anyone's seen before. Uh, it's pretty unique, and you're meeting with architects or, or planning committees or whatever, and, um, and they're, like, they're like, I don't, how, how's that, how's that going to work? How's that going to mm. happen? Like, like, when are times that you've, that your innovation needed a whole lot of explaining, or or, or just do you have a unique yeah. story towards that? Yeah. Well, there's two that immediately pop into my brain. One is from 2017, and then the other one is with Link. I'll tell the one from 2017 <laughs> first. So I really wanted to build a mountain range in the gallery, which is a horrible place to start. Um, if you want anybody to actually allow you to build it. 
Okay, everybody, so this is what I'm thinking. We build a mountain range in here. Um, and they were, they were actually like quite excited about the idea, but the problem was um, building a mountain range didn't, with a tunnel system that it went through the whole thing and eventually get to like the heart cavern, like the concept and the ideas were really solid. But their, their no came from fire suppression. They're like, it sounds great, but we can't have fire sprinklers in there because we, we don't have budget to drop the sprinkler heads down inside the mountain range. And so we can't do it. Like, unless you want to have a mountain range that doesn't have a roof on it, which doesn't sound like a mountain range. And so I was like, okay, let me, let me think about it. And I was like, I'm unwilling to not build a mountain range. <laughs> That's the only idea. <laughs> so how are we, how are we going to have fire suppression in there? And I had always kind of kept a lot of the scraps from my wood shop stuff. And I had this whole collection of little triangles. And at the time I had this little scrap pile and all these triangles and I went and if you can imagine a bunch of almost equilateral triangles fitting together where you have a solid and then you have an empty space and a solid and an empty space and then I just drilled out the corners and connected it with bread twist ties and you could kind of make this movable fabric that you could drape over things and I was like well what if I were to go and and cut out <laughs> a lot of these triangle tiles drill the corners, connect them all to make these, these fabrics that have 50% um, negative space in that. Would that work for fire suppression? And they were like, yeah, that would, but you know that's gonna be a lot of tiles. And I was like, I do know that, but if I cut out enough, would you let me do that? And they said, yeah. And it was approximately 10,000 woodcut triangles that were all cut by hand at a, at a chop saw. And I had a couple friends. One of them was Ryan. Another one um, was Shane. Ryan Shoemaker is um, one of the collaborators to make the film, where they showed up to help. And I was like, okay, we've got 10,000 woodcut triangles. Uh, we need to drill holes in all the corners. Um, real quick math, that's going to be 30,000 pre-drills. <laughs> and then we're going to need 30,000 bread twist ties. Um, so you better eat a lot of sandwiches. <laughs> Um, and we went and we did it. And then we made all these big, huge sections that you could drape over um, the structure. So imagine bringing in all the chairs from the kitchen and then you take the sheet and you drape it over the, the chairs like a fabric and then you can go in. So we built this whole huge modular infrastructure as the base and then draped all these woodcut tile fabrics over the top of them to make this mountain range and it worked for fire suppression and it was far more interesting than anything that I could have come up with on purpose for that ceiling. So that innovation um, came out of necessity, which, you know, just the age old phrase, I was like, this is great. That was really, really interesting. Um, so then with a nice, a nice challenge and innovation, with this project was when it comes to weight rating, we had this wall that we wanted to all be um, stone to, to be reminiscent of the signature bluffs that are alongside the Poudre River off of uh, where you park on 71st next to the Red Barn if you walk west. And we came to find out that was just gonna be way too much weight. And 
so it was like, okay, like our plan A was this, and let's not move down to plan B. Let's think hard to try and find what are the other plan A's that we haven't thought of yet. And right around that time, I went and I took a walk at a place called Dead Horse Bay, um, which is definitely not on any of the top 10 um, tourist destinations in New York. It <laughs> uh, doesn't get a whole lot of foot traffic, but Dead Horse Bay kind of is um, what it sounds like, or it used to be that. It was where a lot of the, the dead animals, like pre, um, pre-car in New York, would end up as all these horse-drawn carriages eventually would lose their horses. And it was part animal carcass processing, part just like city dump. And there aren't, there aren't really any bones there anymore, a few here or there, but there are a lot of glass bottles and all these old broken tile everywhere and broken chunks of bathtubs. And you might find like some cool vintage chunk of a floor like from the, from the 20s or 30s. And I was just piecing all these tiles together and it was gorgeous. And I was like, oh, what if um, I were to take one of the central ideas from that rock grotto area, which is this image of a, of a horse with the rider riding backwards, and make it, make the horse out of the tile from Dead Horse Bay and do this really elaborate mosaic that features that horse in the middle, but then has all the other characters with broken tile from there, but then also going to places like Habitat for, for Humanity and sort of like open sourcing tile, doing a lot of it at maybe making some at the Clay Center and then breaking it into all these fractals. And that quickly became apparent that that rock grotto wall was gonna be this beautiful central focal point for all the characters with this new plan A, where the old plan A um, in comparison was just a, a simple rock wall, as if you were to build a rock wall as like a retaining wall. It didn't have any special flair to it. It would have been artfully made, but it didn't have the, the gravity or the creative zhuzh that this new one did. And now looking back, if I were to just side by side, compare and contrast, I would pick the, the new idea every time. And that only came from a, a weight engineering restriction that we had to find a workaround. So to me, oftentimes, like in those spaces, some of the best ideas come out of being told no from something and you just have to look a little bit harder. And I was having a conversation with our project manager, Carrie Adder, and she was like, you know, a lot of times um, people have to put up a fight for those things, um, but we keep finding that by not putting up a fight for it, that if you sort of like Bruce Lee, like water your way through it, a better idea will present itself if you're willing to wait and be patient with it and continue again just to notice. And at that point in time, I was just like at Dead Horse Bay and noticed all those tiles and was like, oh, this, this could be a better idea. And I'm glad that we didn't fight it tooth and nail to advocate for the rock wall because um, a better idea came. So really, that, that speaks to um, all the main things. Like, like, that's really exactly what I was looking for. Was, cool. Was you speaking about innovation and, and that, like, that idea of, like, come up with another plan A. Yeah. 
Come over there to plan A, and like when you compare the two, you might like the second plan A better. Really? So, in this in this episode, I've gotten some stories lined up where it's going to be. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about ditch number three. Mm-hmm. It's actually really neat because the flow of um, water in Greeley and Weld County is a story of innovation. It is a story of like, how are we going to live here? Mm-hmm. And and like so all the, the white settlers who came in, the first thing they did that, that year that they arrived was everyone was like rolled up their sleeves and were like, guess we're digging a ditch. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's over here. <laughs> it starts over here. Like, um, and, and then they, they attached it um, to the pooter and, um, and, and like had it go through a, a huge swath of the town. And, and then... <laughs> what? I'm laughing at... It was, I know this isn't true, but like the first ditch they dig is ditch number three. I was like, (laughs) (laughs) just, it's a little bit of a marketing thing. They're like, we're already on our third. It's great. Move to Greeley. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, No, so they, they dug the ditch. Well, then um, they uh, found a well in Lincoln Park. Whoa. Have you been to Lincoln Park and seen that big, towering, yeah. like... That's what it's a reference to, or that is the that well. That is the well. No way! When they dug that artisanal well, everyone was overjoyed because they didn't have to drink ditch water anymore. <laughs> <laughs> like, like ditch water, like, they, they said the sickness levels... Oh, like, my God. Like, completely changed. Ditch because water. Because they were drinking ditch water. And it was like... <laughs> and, and so, and so, like they said, they said it was almost sparkling, like as it came out, and they, they said it was, it had a medicinal quality to it, of like, like they felt like it was, it was restorative. Really, they dug that well. When they covered it over, I think it was in the '30s, night twenty-seven. Um, they invited everybody in town to bring a, a significant rock or something significant to them. That's what you see today. <sighs> Oh, that's, that's a, incredible. That's a structure that was like put together in 1930s. Wow. Um, and I think they've, they've done rework on it yeah. um, to preserve it. But like, like they didn't need it anymore. And so they wanted to do this like community thing. I was on a Zoom call with Amy Long's class this morning. Mm-hmm. And they're going to do a project like as a commercial for Link in connection to it. I'm sure you know bits and pieces about it. Mm-hmm. And one of the kids was like it could be really cool if we all collected a rock from the river and then we like put it against the river wall at the library and that is a pretty strong connection to the idea that you just said it could be so special if everybody brings a stone like if you know we're having like a, a grand opening day and everybody brings a stone we're going to pile all those stones up like by the entrance to the space and then eventually go and i'll put like all those stones like in a line along the roof line or something like that and that's like a reference to the artisanal well and i mean the the metaphor of a well is just so time eternal and one of the goals of the installation again there are many goals but one of them is essentially to give you a bucket and a rope for your own well and to be able to draw water up from those deep 
places within you and you always have that source of fresh life-giving water within you and then you ask the question like do you know where that well is do you have a bucket to draw it up and so being able to to thread that into the connection of that um lincoln park well i think is one of my new favorite things like that's a very beautiful is that cool yeah no it's truth For our next segment of this episode, we head out to this well. Found in Lincoln Park near downtown Greeley, we're going to go there with a friend of mine, a journalist for our region. Give me your name for the podcast. Um, My name is Kelly Reagan. Kelly's going to give us a little history of the well, but then also tell the story of how an intensely dark time for Weld County brought about the innovation of the Colorado Big Thompson Project which is how we get most of our water in Northern Colorado today. First, I just wanna say Kelly is such a fun interview. She's 28, she has a lot of great energy. She's an incredible journalist and writer. And then she'll tell you, once you hit record, start recording me live, my brain will quit working for me. We, we hopped in her car and headed to the actual Pioneer Fountain in Lincoln Park. Here is her brain uh, hiccuping. I edited this out of the rest of the interview, but she said I could leave just a little bit of this in, you know, to, to keep it real. Tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, let, let me... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Am I going the right way? I'm panicking now. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Yes, yeah. Yes, I am. Okay, uh, yeah, Lincoln okay. Okay. <laughs> I'm getting nervous now. Okay. <clears throat> Anyway, okay. Uh, do it again. <laughs> well, let's start with um, start with journalism, because you've been in, in journalism for... I have been a journalist in some way, shape, or form for about eight years now. I started as an intern at the Tribune, at the Greeley Tribune, when I was 20, a little senior in college. Um, after that internship, I got hired on, worked at the Tribune for a couple years, uh, then worked at the Fort Collins Colorado Inn, um, and in 2020, I launched the NOCO Optimist and have been uh, working as an independent journalist uh, running the NOCO Optimist since then. Awesome, and I've been a subscriber to the NOCO Optimist really when it was getting started. I, I loved the idea of receiving uh, your news in a little month or a little weekly email uh, that you have featured stories. I thought it was super well written and it was easy, bite-sized information and then you can dig further if you want. Yeah, tell me a little bit about your heart behind NoCo Optimist. So my passion behind local news is one of is one of being really community driven. Like I love living in Greeley because I know what's going on and I feel connected to it because I, you know, I know about these new restaurants opening or I know about these new businesses opening and I want to try them out or support them. And I know the people behind them or I care a lot about, you know, going to city council meetings not because I love sitting through meetings or reading through agendas, because let me tell you, no one likes that. <laughs> uh, but it matters. It helps, it helps, um, or by understanding some of that stuff, you know who, who's pulling the strings, what can be done, what is being done to make life better for you, for your neighbors. Ultimately, it comes down to this feeling of community and being aware of what's going on and, um, 
feeling more connected that way. When you care about something and something's well-being, you learn about it. Uh, and that's what local news can offer, is really ways to be connected, to learn more, and that is the passion behind the Noco Optimist is helping people make those connections and, and empowering them to do something about it. You can subscribe to the Noco Optimist for free at thenocooptimist.com. Thenocooptimist.com. Local news then comes to you weekly in an email. She raises support for this through a site called Patreon. It's a place where you can give monthly to help Kelly and her team continue this work. A lot of people doing podcasts or creative work use this model hosted by Patreon. It's like setting up a monthly tip jar payment. I would highly suggest that you sign up. So I wanted to involve you in this, in this podcast series uh, where water flows a pill. I wanted to involve you with it because I wanted to hear your take on No Co-Optimist and, uh, and have you represented here of just kind of a person of local interest. You know what's going on. Uh, but then also, you are someone who loves research. Yes. And, and digging into this. And I thought to myself, I, I, my interest in research is like below one. If 10 is a high, like mine's like below one or two. Like, <laughs> and, and so when I asked, I said, would you look up some uh, Greeley water history and tell us a little bit about things? You, what was your response to this? Oh, I was excited. I love any excuse I get to go into the little basement of the Greeley Museum to dig in the archives for whatever <laughs> I'll find or, you know, start doing some research in newspaper archives or reading through books. I'm pumped about it. Yeah. You got to wear these little gloves when you go into the museum so you don't damage the documents. And, like, <laughs> you're not allowed to have pens. Uh, like no pens around so you don't mark stuff that can't be like, really? you know, not erased. Okay. Um, so it's very, That's know, a big deal. It's very, they take it very seriously and it, I love it. It's archival. Yes. It's very archival. But you know, it also does make you feel like Indiana Jones to some degree, so. <laughs> <laughs> On a very hot day in August, we approached the well. You'll hear some music from the park in the background and some cars driving by every so often. While exploring... Kelly told me and, uh, some stories. A little bit about it. Yeah, so this fountain that you'll see in Lincoln Park is called Pioneer Fountain. Um, and it was built originally over a well, which was dug way back in 1885 after several people got sick from drinking surface water thanks to high sulfur content. So around that time when people were getting sick drinking water, um, citizens sent around a petition to do something about it because no one wanted to keep getting sick. Um, so on June 4th, 1883, taxpayers approved a plan to drill Greeley's first artisan well in Lincoln Park. I think the plan for it was inspired by a Denver well that was kind of similar. Um, and so the fountain itself was built in 1907. Um, and from a distance, I would say it looks like a bunch of funky stacked rocks. When they, when they were done with the well, and they turned it into a fountain. People from around actually brought, like in 1907, people from around brought special rocks or things to just pile over this yeah. and, and to actually be a part of it. And um, 
and you and you found out like what are a couple of the items that are in there you could yeah you could see. so maybe we'll have to take a little a little look see to see if we can find them but um i read that you uh might be able to spot some seashells which some of them are from maine like some of the pioneers uh brought some seashells from home i guess and there is even a petrified snake in there somewhere That's awesome. uh, to, in addition to the rocks which were I believe brought um, brought in from Colorado Springs. Awesome. Um, I want to find the petrified snake. I, I know. I, now, need, I, I do know. I want to. <laughs> I want to look around. In front of Pioneer Fountain, Kelly then told me the story of how the Big Thompson Project came to be from an idea into a reality, and how it was, at its beginning, born out of necessity. Yeah, so I'll just kind of start by setting the scene here. Yeah. Um, so today, you know, we turn on our tap and water comes out. We don't really have to think too hard about it. Uh, but a lot of the water we use, whether it's to drink, uh, grow our crops, water our lawns, you know, whatever we use water for, comes from the Western Slope. On average, Northeastern Colorado gets about 14.5 inches of precipitation each year. So for context, most of our irrigated crops, you know, all that farmland you'll see as you're driving around, um, need at least twice that amount to grow. So that creates kind of a problem. You know, you need, you need more than you have. Um, but back in the early 1900s, you know, as, as we know with ditch number three and a lot of the work that's, uh, that went into irrigating these lands, um, Greeley citizens did know a lot about irrigation. Um, so that wasn't totally new and they were using that already. Um, there's the Bellevue Treatment Facility, which was built in 1907. So we had local sources and stores of water, but then came a series of events that really catapulted Greeley and its innovative thinkers into motion, and we really haven't stopped since. <laughs> um, on October 29th, 1929, as the world now knows, <laughs> the, uh, the stock market crashed, and with it, so did banks, jobs, and the economy. Uh, things were pretty bleak. On top of that, the US and Canada were hit with the most severe drought in recorded history. The crops dried up and withered into dust, livestock starved and I, died <laughs> I, had for, I had forgotten that, yeah. that that was paired in the exact same year yes yeah yeah and the, so uh, can you imagine living here in 1929 1930 and and not only has economy crashed but then you're getting all of like a drought to that degree things were pretty dire in terms of the food available um and just really what options people had and then uh, you know, grasshoppers ate up any a lot of the crops that were remaining, and I mean, they ate up clothes and fence posts as well. So just the world seemed like it was crumbling before their very eyes back in back in the the 1929 1930 time period. Uh, so not a good time. And on top of that, water pipelines were leaking. The city's water department employees were frantically working to save water and like convince people to stop. Uh, wasting it in any way, shape, or form. Um, and if that wasn't enough, there was a really harsh cold snap in 1929 that then froze sugar beets in the ground and burst a bunch of water pipes um, in people's homes, beneath the city streets. Uh, Greeley saw about 20 days in a row of sub-zero temperatures. So, you know, if the, if the stuff below ground had somehow managed to survive this drought, it then got frozen uh, and died anyway. So this, of course, as you know, I'm sure all of us are tempted to do when it's really, really cold, is to leave uh, the faucets running to stop their own pipes from freezing. 
and that I've, of course I've done that before yes so have I and so yes of course like during this time there was a water shortage uh, because people were leaving their pipes running and everything was horrible so this was a full-blown emergency uh, city reservoirs were depleted by the end of January um, so remember you know a lot of the stuff started happening in October by the end of January Greeley's reservoirs and their storage dropped below 50% of capacity which is a huge problem like that's bad so movers shakers and innovators and your regular old concerned citizens started to turn to an old idea to solve this new problem <laughs> Dramatic music. Dun, yeah. dun, dun. What was it? Uh, <clears throat> so the idea for the Colorado Big Thompson project had actually been around since at least 1884, uh, when a state engineer did, did a preliminary survey of a project to divert water from the West Slope to the Front Range. But a project like that was, and remains to this day, a huge, expensive undertaking. Um, and until the crisis spurred on by the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl, uh, the, the Greeley Water Department operated efficiently. It wasn't, you know, a huge top priority because it was a problem or a concern that seemed kind of distant. It wasn't really, it wasn't right now. We didn't have to deal with it yet. But, you know, then it suddenly was a big problem and we did have to think about it and really had to start problem solving. Um, so on July 29th, uh, 1933, a chance meeting brought this idea back to life. So Greeley water attorney, William R. Kelly, bumped into a man named Fred Norcross, who was the former chair of the Greeley Chamber of Commerce and also a former state senator. Um, and, uh, they, he, and they bumped into L.L. Stimson, an irrigation engineer at the post office. So, you know, they're just bopping around as you do. Uh, and I, I just imagine them like in line being like, oh, have you heard about this water problem? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I imagine, you know, just like you, you just kind of bump into people and start chit-chatting about the problems of the day. Um, and they started talking. They knew that the Colorado le uh, legislature had considered the idea of something like the Colorado Big Thompson Project as early as 1889, but it hadn't moved forward. But perhaps now was the time. <laughs> The ferocious drought made people desperate. The Great Depression ignited new local, state, and federal partnerships, and modern tunnel boring technology was now available. So a lot of stuff had kind of come together uh, in their favor to actually do something, it, and you know the, the fire was really lit under them to solve this problem. So. Just weeks after that chance meeting at the post office, the Greeley Chamber of Commerce established a group called the Grand Lake Committee. Um, it was ultimately in charge of undertaking surveys and collecting funds to get the things done. So this group, founded in Greeley, uh, was successful. On July 1st, 1936, Congress greenlit the project, calling it, finally, the Colorado Big Thompson Project. Construction began in 1938 and wrapped up in 1956. So that's about 20 years it took uh, for that whole thing to be completed. And to this day, it is the largest trans mountain water diversion in the state. Oh, say that again. To this day, it's, it's the what? <laughs> to this day, it is the largest trans mountain water diversion in the state. Meaning we're taking water from one side mm -hmm. of the mountains and taking it to the other side of yep. the mountains. Okay. Yep, a lot of moving water. <laughs> uh, and yeah, it's, it, like I said, still the biggest. So it was, and is, <laughs> that I know. I have a citation that says so. <laughs> 
But yeah, in total, the Colorado Big Thompson project uh, consists of 12 reservoirs, 35 miles of tunnels, 95 miles of canals, and 700 miles of transmission lines. Uh, so it's huge. Uh, and the water diverted from the Colorado Big Thompson project is now stored in three reservoirs along the Front Range. You'll probably recognize their names, uh, Horsetooth, Carter Lake, and Boulder Reservoir. It collects, stores, and delivers more than 200,000 acre feet of supplemental water each year. So to put that in perspective, that means it delivers water to more than a million people and to about 615,000 acres of irrigated farmland in northeastern Colorado. And it took about 20 years for the Colorado Big Thompson to be completed. Now, that's plenty of time for people to forget why it was such an urgent need. <laughs> you know, think back 20 years ago to any number of projects that seemed super urgent at the time and you forget what kind of infrastructure was put in place to address that problem. Um, so it can be easy to forget. But the yeah, new that system... Is, I do think that's fascinating yeah. that it began as a, gi a gigantic need and a mm -hmm. response, but then it kept going. And then when it got finished, we were in a new era already. Yeah. However, like you said, you're going to finish with this. Yes. So the new system was finished in 1956, which was just in time for another dry cycle, which then saved us from having that exact same problem or, you know, a similar problem to the dust bowl. We had water in different places that we could move around and it wasn't, we weren't super dependent on our local water sources to just get through the year, uh, which made a big difference. Yeah, it we, still does to this day. We weren't in that emergency state of 50% of the reservoir being gone. Yeah. How interesting. We grow from uh, digging a ditch to digging a well to putting in a massive system that takes water from one side of the mountains uh, to the other. And uh, now, still a huge conversation, still a huge discussion because this area keeps growing so much. After our time at the fountain, I hopped back in the car with Kelly and asked her the big question that I've been asking those interviewed on the podcast this season. In the coming flood of change, who do we want to be? Mm, yeah. And as this area grows and changes, who do you want Greeley to be? Who do you want Weld County to be, uh, in, your, in your opinion? Ooh, in my opinion? Yeah. Um, I don't... <laughs> Well, I don't typically give those as a journalist, but <laughs> just kidding. Um, I want to see Greeley and Weld County be a place where people are making decisions and creating a community based on facts, based on um, you know relationships, and based on understanding of complex issues, and not a community that makes decisions out of fear. So thinking of you know what what our the early pioneers did with water. Um, how they, you know, they reacted out of this, this problem, right? They were really innovative in creating this problem. And now we have such foresight and have planning and are tackling these issues. Like I want us to maintain that spirit and be able to problem solve and create ultimately like better lives for ourselves and for the people around us and, you know, the world. <laughs> um, because we are making good choices and decisions um, because we know more and we've we've done you know we've done the deep dives we we dug deep 
and did something with what we learned. So what's next for Weld County by way of water? Find out in our next episode of Where Water Flows Uphill as we look at the Terry Ranch Project and continue following this stream of innovation in the face of challenge. Huge thanks to Kelly Reagan from the NOCO Optimist for her time and research. Thanks to Wes for the interview by the river. Music for today's show is from composer James Ryan. It's the same music that's going to be used for Wes's installation and art film. Thank you to Dave Farrell, a faculty member at Ames Community College, who helped with the sound engineering and mixing on this episode. As always, thank you to the Weld Community Foundation, who makes this production possible. Again, if you're interested in meeting Wes and celebrating the Foundation's 25-year anniversary with us, tickets are available at weldcommunityfoundation.org. Thanks for listening to Where Water Flows Uphill. If you're enjoying it, rate the show, share it with a friend, and stay tuned for our next episode coming your way soon.